Thanks for joining us again on HealthWave. I'm your host, Mitchell Nail. Here at HealthWave, we believe your health matters because you matter, and we hope today finds you healthy and well. As always, HealthWave is a service of St. Bernard's Healthcare, a trusted provider of comprehensive, compassionate healthcare services, reaching 23 counties in northeast Arkansas and southeast Missouri. Its flagship facility, St. Bernard's Medical Center, located in the heart of Jonesboro, Arkansas for 120 years, houses the only Level 3 trauma center and neonatal intensive care unit in the region for every stage of life. St. Bernard's is there, ready to serve you through education, treatment, and health services. I'm excited about today's program because we've got not only one of our top up-and-coming primary care physicians with us, but he also happens to be a longtime friend of mine and just an overall super guy, Dr. Mark Wiggins. As background, Dr. Wiggins is a native of Jonesboro, attended Jonesboro High School and Arkansas State University. He was commissioned into the United States Air Force at graduation and began medical school at the University of Arkansas for Medical Sciences shortly after. While in the Air Force, he was stationed in Germany in Western Africa, where he served as a physician officer, ultimately obtaining the rank of major. Upon completing his service in the Air Force, he and his family moved back to Jonesboro, where he joined St. Bernard's, working in family medicine. Dr. Wiggins is married to his wife, Sandra, and they have two daughters, Lily and Charlotte. Dr. Wiggins, welcome to HealthWave. Thanks for having me. Dr. Wiggins, let's begin with your service in the Air Force. For starters, we could spend multiple episodes just talking about your experiences serving your country. Would you, in a small nutshell, give us an overview of your responsibilities overseas? Sure, Mitchell. So as you said, I I went to UAMS, and then I did a residency in family medicine with the Air Force, and then uh, did some additional training to get rated as a flight surgeon, which means, you know, you're you're mobilized to go to stir environments throughout the world and uh, keep our airmen safe in those locations. As you mentioned, uh, I was actually stationed overseas uh, for three years as a flight surgeon, and was honored to actually serve in a deployed setting in West Africa for six months during that time. In that role, I I served as the base physician and public health officer, ensuring that our airmen were properly vaccinated and and prepared to live in an austere environment, you know, not the United States. And I also worked uh, in that framework with our commanders to maintain water sanitation systems and even create disease containment plans for illnesses that we just don't traditionally see in the United States, but would routinely occur at our location. And that experience, I think, really gave me a powerful insight into the importance of public health and why preventive measures are vital uh, to keeping everyone safe and keeping everything functioning. Dr. Wiggins, you and I have communicated back and forth throughout this COVID-19 pandemic about our need to safely get back to some sense of normalcy. Well, in the absence of a vaccine, facial coverings or masks, social distancing and good hygiene are our best tools to stay well. But I think we all know that tools are only as effective as their frequent and proper usage. Looking at masks specifically, because I've heard you talk about their importance, my question to you is this. What do masks really do and what do they not? That's a great question. So there's been kind of a misconception out and about about what we should be doing with masks. But I'll just clarify that masks are not designed to protect you from other people. They're designed to protect other people from you. When you put on a mask you're being courteous to your fellow citizens by assuming that you are, quote, positive, even if you have zero symptoms. I personally have not experienced any symptoms related to COVID since this all started, but I continue to see every single patient in my clinic with a mask on, on the presumption that I'm positive and either low risk or even asymptomatic, and then I go on giving it to all of my patients throughout the day. Most of those patients are coming to me because they've got chronic diseases, and they're therefore just by default probably sicker than I am. So it's a courteous thing to do to protect others from you, even if you don't know you're carrying it. 
If you happened to actually be positive and you didn't know it, a mask does a few things for you. It actually reduces the size of the droplets that you spread. It reduces the distance that your droplets can travel. And it reduces what is called the infectious dose threshold. This is kind of loosely defined as it's the amount of a virus that's needed to actually infect someone. And that potential infectious dose kind of lives in your cloud around your immediate area. And that's why social distancing is important, because social distancing keeps you out of my cloud. The reason we're doing all this is because by its genetic makeup, coronavirus is an RNA virus. Norovirus, which is the the cruise ship sickness virus, if you ever read on the news that 25 people got sick at the buffet on a cruise ship, that's the norovirus. And that's important because the norovirus can be infectious with just one virus particle. And at this time, because COVID-19 is so new, we don't actually know what the minimum infectious dose is. And that's why we have these precautions in place. And as it always goes back to hand washing, I mean, that should be done because we've known for a couple hundred years now that that's good basic hygiene. I, I talk to my patients about why masks are important and you should do these and make these social distance considerations. And, you know, I always hear the counter argument that, you know, I have a friend who wears a mask all the time and he still got sick. I haven't worn a mask since this all started and nothing's happened to me, so there must not be any science behind it. I'm kind of looking at this the same way we do seatbelts. Uh, I've, I've worked in the ER, I've managed traumas, and I can confidently tell you that there are some people uh, who wear their seatbelt appropriately and, and they still have a, a fatal accident in an automobile. And there are some people who don't wear their seatbelt and they'll have a, a terrible accident and walk away unscathed. And you know, sometimes we don't have an explanation for why those things happen, but it, it doesn't change the fact that on you know routine basis, a, a seatbelt is always going to be a good idea to wear. And I think the same applies with masks. I'm speaking with Dr. Mark Wiggins, a primary care physician with St. Bernard's Healthcare in Jonesboro, Arkansas. Dr. Wiggins, we've had so many revised recommendations from authorities like the CDC regarding COVID-19 or the novel coronavirus. Well, some folks perceive these revisions as a sign of some other agenda. In turn, they question or are skeptical about information that might seem conflicting to them. Well, what's your take on these revised recommendations? Absolutely. There has been a ton of information thrown out in a very short amount of time, and that just by the sheer volume of it makes things seem really confusing to everyone, uh, medical staff included. And at times it even appears that recommendation A doesn't match with recommendation B. And this is because COVID is a new and unprecedented challenge, and we continue to learn more about it every day. The medical guidance that we gave in March was made with March data. The medical guidance we're giving in August is being made with August data. Medicine is always adapting to stay current with the needs of our patient population, and COVID-19 is no different. Dr. Wiggins, circling back to the absence of a proven COVID-19 vaccine, you've spent time in parts of the globe where diseases we often overlook still ravage vulnerable populations, and it's easy for us to take that for granted. I've also heard you say that you have full confidence in the vaccine testing process. Describe to me that as a veteran, as a physician, as a son with two retired parents, as a husband, and as a father of two little ones, why you would encourage our listeners to not adopt a wait-and-see approach when the FDA finally clears a COVID-19 vaccine for the general public. As it relates to vaccines... I have 100% confidence in the safety process for a COVID-19 vaccine because it's the same process we use for every other vaccine. The basic steps of building a vaccine have not changed. Basically, you, you need something to make it into a liquid. You need something to make it thin enough to inject it through a needle. And you need something to stop it from harming the tissue it's being injected into. The only thing that changes across the board is the antigen, the virus, you know, the thing you're actually wanting your body to respond to. And with several vaccines, that antigen is actually just a small piece of sugar that looks like the virus. 
So your body sees it and goes up and beats it up like a pinata without any real actual risk to the patient, and that creates antibodies, which are then stored for when you come into contact with the real virus in the future. It's kind of like building a standing army that's ready to fight whenever you need it instead of scrambling when you're already under attack. The vaccine production process basically has three basic steps. You've got phase one, which is figure out how to kill it. Figure out how to kill the virus in a lab. And once you figure that out, you move on to phase two, which is figure out how to safely kill the virus on tissue in a lab that's not currently attached to a person. And once you figure out how to kill it and you figure out how to kill it on tissue, you move on to phase three, which is where we are as of our conversation. And that's giving the vaccine to small groups of people. You know, the initial trial had 45 people in getting the vaccine, and all 45 of those people subsequently developed antibodies to COVID-19. I mean, that's a pretty solid batting average. That's positive. We are actually now in late phase three, and we've currently got a 30,000 patient trial, which which means we've given out 30,000 shots of the COVID-19 vaccine. And we're watching these individuals out in the community to see, you know, who goes on to develop antibodies and, you know, who's still vulnerable and gets COVID. You know, nothing's perfect. And we're hoping for a 50% vaccine effectiveness rate. And that's important because that's the same benchmark we set for the flu vaccine every year. The smallpox vaccine back in the day was actually 100% effective and smallpox was completely eradicated. The MMR vaccine is pretty good. It comes in about 93% effective, which is actually why you know some people later in life might need a booster. I think the ultimate conclusion would be, though, that whatever the public's perceived risk is about getting this particular vaccine, you know, I want to reassure you that by the time it is released for general use, it's going to be no different than any other vaccine that we offer. And I'll be the first in line to get it. Speaking in studio with Dr. Mark Wiggins, Dr. Wiggins, there was a report released recently where Dr. Anthony Fauci, director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, said he's hoping for a COVID-19 vaccine that's at least 75% effective. With that being said, Dr. Fauci also claimed he doesn't think we'll see what's termed a highly effective COVID-19 vaccine. For starters, what does highly effective actually mean in regards to vaccines? And is it concerning if the COVID-19 vaccine does not fall into that category? I don't think it does. Uh, You know, we have several diseases that we manage uh, year in and year out. You know, we always talk about flu season being in the fall and winter. Uh, The reason we have flu in the fall and winter is because it's cold and we stay inside and we're all stacked on top of each other. And we've got Thanksgiving where we eat off of each other's plates and we've got Christmas where we hug and kiss our relatives. So you're putting people closer together and you're sharing in small environments. And and that's why it always appears like the flu is, quote, you know, more aggressive in the winter. We're just coming in contact more frequently with people who get it. I can confidently tell you based on my own experiences in Africa that I would have little virus outbreaks in the middle of June and and would just kind of take a step back and think, well, hold on, like it's 115 degrees here. Why is it cold and flu season? Well, it's because we're in the military and we're sleeping 12 people to a bunk, head to foot, up and down the the corridor. And so you're you're putting people in closer proximity. But but all I have to say, if it falls below 75, I don't want people to lose hope. I, I think that we're always looking for a complete answer. You know, we see that in advertising all the time. Uh, 100% satisfaction guarantee, guaranteed to go away overnight. And as I mentioned before, you know, the flu vaccine that I strongly recommend that everybody get every year usually comes in in and around 50% effective. And and that's important because some of your individuals in the population who are going to be able to fight off the virus when they come in contact with it, it's going to better prepare people with chronic illnesses to fight it when they come in contact with. 
And there are, there are still the sickest of the sickest and the most vulnerable patients who are going to get sick every winter. And if we've all done our part by staying vaccinated and using our appropriate measures, the resources needed to help the most vulnerable of our population are still going to be there. It's a simple game of musical chairs. If you got five sick people and 10 chairs, you're doing great. You got five extra. If you got 10 sick people and only five chairs, that's a really tough place to be. I'm speaking in studio with Dr. Mark Wiggins with St. Bernard's Healthcare. Dr. Wiggins, last thoughts. We're talking about a virus that has been highly politicized. It carries stigma with it. What are some final thoughts you might have to convey to our listeners? Sure. I, I think it's important to recognize that everybody everybody who's working to come up with a solution for this is, is doing their best working around the clock. And I would just close by saying that covering your mouth and nose when you sneeze or cough has always been considered good manners and polite to others. And I think that wearing a mask is just a step above that. And in a polite society, putting the concerns of other people above your own, regardless of your belief in it, is kind. And I think we could all use a little bit more kindness in our life. That's Dr. Mark Wiggins, a primary care physician with St. Bernard's Healthcare. Dr. Wiggins, we really appreciate your time. Thanks so much for having me. For more information about St. Bernard's Healthcare, you can visit their website, stbernards.info. That's S-T-B-E-R-N-A-R-D-S dot I-N-F-O. Or you can call the St. Bernard's Healthline at 870-207-7300. And we thank each of you for joining us on HealthWave. If you haven't hit that subscribe button yet, we ask that you do so just so that you can know anytime we post a new episode. If you've already subscribed, we appreciate your time. And if you've got the option, we ask that you leave HealthWave a good rating just so others can find us more easily. Lastly, we welcome your questions and suggested topics. You can submit those through social media by searching for St. Bernard's Healthcare on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and sending us a direct message there. But that's all the time we have for this edition of HealthWave. We hope you join us again on our next episode. For HealthWave, I'm your host, Mitchell Nail. Thanks for tuning in.